0: All right, welcome to Two Cities Church, how's everybody doing? All right, I know what you're thinking, what is Kyle wearing? <laughs> Some of you, 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 sometimes Kyle, you wear a button-down, other times you wear a collared shirt. I had someone outside to me say, this is the first time I've ever seen you dress cool. <laughs> well, that's Okay, I'll take it. Here's why I'm wearing this, guys this was given to me from the Summit Collaborative. And you're like, what is that? And that's okay, you shouldn't know what that is. But that is a that is a network of churches that we're a part of, okay? And you might go, what's on the front of his shirt, okay? What's on the front of my shirt is 1,000 little churches. In fact, well, you're in the front row. Can you see, the, you see the green one? Okay, the green one is 59. It's the 59th church, okay? And why that is, is I was just this week with Pastor Dave and our wives, we got together with well, over 50 pastors in Raleigh, Durham, because we're out of the Summit Church with J.D. Greer, and we're a ch- we're a five and a half year old church. We were planted here. Anyway, I wanted to tell you this that it was such an unbelievable time, and they gave us this as a reminder because on my shirt, is not just churches, on my shirt are a thousand churches, and it is the vision of our collaborative to plant a thousand churches in a generation. And this is really exciting, and you're part of it. Every time you pray, every time you give, you call two cities home, you're a part of this. And here's what's exciting: this is something that is much bigger than us, okay, that started before us. It's not even about J.D. and the summit. It started before him and before that church. It started with a guy you may have heard of, Jesus, okay? Yeah, yeah, you've heard of him, okay. You start with Jesus and his 12 disciples and the Apostle Paul. And and by the way, it's going to last much longer than any of us, okay? We're going to be dead and gone, and and people are going to continue to plant churches and make disciples. And so what I wanted to do is, while I'm up here, if you ever look at the shirt and you go, okay, I'm looking at your shirt while Kyle's preaching. What I want you to think about is uh, I want you to think about a thousand churches and our commitment to continue to plant churches. And here's what that means: that we really believe that the future church planters are in our city. They might be in this room, they might be watching online, and we believe that there's going to be many churches we're going to plant in years to come, and many of you may go out from this church to help plant those churches. So I want to take a moment, pray for the churches. This week, uh, we hit 59 churches that we've now planted as a network, and ten of those were this year. We're beginning to multiply. So we we sent 10 families out this last week. So I want to take a moment, pray for them, and then we're going to dive into James 2. Let's pray. Lord, well, we lift up those 10 families. There's 59 churches in our network, and these 10 families, I think about one family that's heading to Charleston, South Carolina, just with a hope to reach that, that little southern city that has such a big influence with the college campuses around it as well. well I, I pray for Brian Davis, who we've already supported, and he's in NOTA, He's right in this really neat area of Charlotte and they're committed. I think about my friend, Jeremy, who, a family of seven, they're leaving their home in Greensboro to go plant a church in Nova Scotia. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for faith like that, Lord. A faith that is evident in their actions of willing to go and plant a church, Lord. Would you please bless your word today as we talk about faith and works in Jesus' name? Amen. All right, type two, turn to James 2. Guys, if you look behind me, you're gonna see there's this, it says faith IRL. Okay, so we're in the book of James and the series called Faith IRL. And I'm not, sorry, I've not done a great job explaining what faith IRL means, okay? Now, if you're under 30, you're like, I know what IRL means, okay? But if you're over 30, you may not know what it means. In fact, I was in a room and we were thinking, what should we call this series? And someone said, well, if it's about faith, living it out, why don't we call it faith IRL? And I thought, what does that mean? They said, faith in real life. I said, okay, I'm cool with that. Uh, and, And so what this means is that And maybe this is a good way for you to think about it. Faith is not something as much that you argue about, it's something that you live out, okay? That's really in some sense what the whole book of James is about. Now, can you argue about faith? Fine. We've all done it. We've all had, if you've been a Christian for a while, you had that Calvinism, Arminianism debate. You had that, do we baptize babies or do we not baptize babies? What's a woman's role in ministry? Was it a literal six days or not? We've all argued about it. Well, fair enough, dialogue and debate and discuss. And there's a whole kind of, if you don't know this, there's a whole discipline of Christianity called apologetics. It's all about defending the faith. I'm all for that. But after you're done arguing about it, can you live it out? And here's what we learned by that. It, it, so faith is not ultimately intellectual. And you know this because have you ever been like, I think I believe something, but maybe I don't because I'm living completely differently. Like you'll have that conversation with yourself. Like, well, how could I believe what I'm believing and talk to my wife that way? Like, how can I believe in forgiveness and, and be so unwilling to extend it? So you know it's not just intellectual. You also know it's not just spiritual. Spiritual is like, well, when you think about spiritual, you might think, like, well, is faith in women, especially, sorry, women, but you know, especially women can get overly spiritual about faith sometimes. Is, faith, is it all about feelings? Is, is it all about praying? Is it all about being spiritual and having kind of faith in faith? It's interesting. I was talking to a mentor of mine, and my mentor, he said, he said, I want my I told my kids when they were young but they could understand. He said, I want you guys to remember me as a good man, not a godly man. I thought, well, that's strange coming from a pastor. I said, why wouldn't you wanna be a godly man? He says, people do all kind of weird things and call it godly. People do a lot of weird, in the name of being spiritual, in the name of religion, in the name of faith, it's like, well, how about you just be a good person? That is the example of godliness. So here's what we know, that faith is practical, right? You live it out. This is what this whole series, this is what the whole book of James is about. He's pushing on you and me. He's pressing on it. He's like, is it affecting your wallet? Is it affecting your words? Is it affecting your work? Is it touching your budget? Is it showing up in your schedule? Is it affecting you as a dad, as a mom, as a husband, as a father? You, you get it. And, and so here's, here's today. Today, James, is. we're gonna be in verses 14 through 26. And those of you who take notes, and I wanna thank both of you for doing that. Um, you know, those of you who take notes, uh, there's, We're moving today from favoritism, which was the first 13 verses of the chapter to faith. This is a whole conversation today about faith and faith is unbelievably important, right? We're told that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Do you think faith is important? We're told that whatever is not from faith is sin. We're told that the righteous will live by faith. I mean, this is a massive concept and, James is going to push on us because really, I'll show you this, it's, it's, it's a lot today, but it's not faith versus works, although we can look at that. It's not, if you read it carefully, it's not, is it faith or works? It's a faith that works. And, and, and it's really, say, it's really what is true biblical faith and what is false faith. And there are many forms of false faith, false faith. There's only one biblical faith. And so here's the big idea for the whole sermon, and I think you'll get this as soon as I say it, that you can't meet Jesus and stay the same. I mean, just think about it for a second. Like if I told you guys, if I got up here and I said, hey guys, listen, it's been a rough weekend for me. And I said, yesterday I was hit by a bus that was traveling 60 miles an hour. You would immediately know that I'm lying. And there's a couple reasons for that, right? Think about this for a second. You cannot come into contact with something that massive and it has such an impact on you and you stay the same, right? Options for me getting hit by a bus is Kyle's in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> we're beginning a new senior pastor approach. It's, it's Kyle's at Wake Baptist, would you pray for him? Or somebody wheeled, you know, put me up on a wheelchair on the stage and I gave a testimony, okay? <laughs> Those are the options for Kyle got hit with a bus yesterday. And so, so we, we get that kind of in the real world, but we don't get that in the spiritual world. Or think about it this way, every time that you get a significant relationship in your life, it affects your whole life. So we've all had that, especially the guys, I don't know how it works with ladies, but guys, we get, we got college buddies, and then we've got like our single friends. And let's—I don't know. Let's. I always pick on Bob, so let's let's say Tim instead. So this guy named Tim, okay? He's in your—he's part of your group, and he's a great guy. And the, man, he likes to golf, and he likes to hang out, and you guys go to eat, and you travel together. And then Tim meets Susie, and all the guys like are, are like, "Why? Tim doesn't golf as much anymore. Tim started tucking his shirt in, you know? I don't." <laughs> Tim's looking for one of those real jobs where you have to work 40 hours a week, you know? It's like, what's going on with Tim? Well, Tim had a relationship. We've all seen this, and the relationship changed his life. I mean, think about marriage. What does marriage do? And most guys don't get this until we've been married like a couple months. It's like, yep, this changes everything. <laughs> changes everything. The wife gets that more quickly. The husband's like, oh, I guess it does. Um, or you have a kid, right? You, have, you become a dad, you become a mom. We, it's like, think about it though for just a second. I mean, really, if Jesus is really, and we believe he is, who the Bible says he is, the living Lord, the risen and reigning King of the universe, the sinless Son of God, our Lord and Savior. How can we meet him and stay the same? That's James' whole point. And when he says faith, when you read the word faith, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about intellectual, uh, intellectual assent. He's not talking about beliefs in a certain confession or creed. He's talking about a vibrant relationship with the living God that disrupts your life in the best sense of the word. So let me show you, because you got to see this. This is in James chapter two. I don't normally read all of a passage, but it's just so important. So you you just follow along. It's a a lot of text. It's like 13 or 14 verses, but just look at me. Here's what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the answer is no, there are false forms of faith that say something, but they don't live it out. Here's what he says. If a brother or sister, that's not biological brother or sister, that's your, that's your brother and sister in Christ, okay? That's the familial language of the New Testament talking about the church. Okay, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He's he's just, he's pushing on us. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We'll talk about that. Some of you may have a dead faith in here. Verse 18, he knows like someone's gonna kind of come back and ask some questions. Well, hold on, can I be the exception? Well, I know somebody. Well, my story's unique. So here it is. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and by the way, that was the John three sixteen statement of the Old Testament. God is one. Uh, it's, it's out of Deuteronomy 6, you can look there later, but that's where he's getting, that's the Shema. God, you're the Lord your God, the Lord is one, okay? So look what it says. Um, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, shudder is the Greek word for the hair on the back of your neck and standing up. Like involuntary fear, okay? Um, Verse 20, do you you want to be shown, you foolish person? So he's just, it's harsh. He's using some just direct language with us. He's being blunt. That faith apart from works is useless. So first he says dead, now he says useless. He gives us an example. Was Abraham, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, look at this. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faithful. alone. now that's interesting. So let's just stop for a second. When, cause you may read this, and if you know your Bible, you go, wait a second, doesn't Paul say the opposite of this? Doesn't Paul say that we are justified apart from works of the law? In fact, like that's like, if you don't know that, that's Paul's main message. So let me just explain this and I'll explain this a little more as we go along. But when Paul uses the word justified, he's talking about being justified before God. How are you made right before God? The answer is faith alone. James is asking this question, how are you justified or we might say vindicated in front of other people? In other words, how do other people know you have faith? As soon as you believe, as soon as I believe, guess what? God knows my heart, the moment I believe. I don't have to show him anything. I'm justified by faith alone but how do I know what you believe? Because you say you believe something? I'm supposed to believe your words? The only way that we know what people believe, the only way I can see your hope and your joy and your faith and your love, those are all great biblical concepts, I only see them when they affect you and they change how you live. Also, when it says justified by works, you need to know both words. So the word works, when Paul says works, he says we won't be justified by works. What Paul means when he says works is the legal demands of the law. I don't have to fulfill the legal demands of the law. Here's what James means when he says, you need to be justified by works. Good deeds to your neighbor. And he's saying that how do we know a person's life has been changed by Jesus? They do a ton of good deeds for other people because of what God's done for them. And then he gives us two examples. Look here. He gave first Abraham. Now look what he gives in verse 25. In the same way was not Rahab the prostitute. It's like, how would you, don't you feel bad for Rahab? Rahab's like, do I have to be known as Rahab the prostitute forever? (laughs) Doubting Thomas is up there going, I get it, I get it, it's hard, (laughs) right? I'm known for the the, the sin of my life. Okay, and in the same way, was Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Summary statement here, Uh, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Now, I already kind of showed you the difference. Here's what I want to show you. We're going to get into faith and talk about faith the rest of the time, but I want to just take a moment and talk about reading the Bible. And the reason I say that is because we just read the Bible together. And my conviction here is to help you guys read the Bible. One of the reasons we do verse by verse, it's called expositional or expository preaching. But the reason we walk through books verse by verse, there's lots of reasons that we do that. One of the main reasons is so that when we do it, you go, Oh, I can do that. I can read the verse and say it says this and apply it to my life. Well, great. That's what we want to do. But here's what happens. Every once in a while, when you read the Bible, you may get confused. You might, well, you might be reading James too, and you go, wait, Paul says the opposite of this. Doesn't Jesus say something? And how does it all work together? And here's what we want to say, that the Bible, here's the conviction under, when you read the Bible, okay? The conviction is that the Bible had many human authors, but the Bible has one divine author. And that the Bible that never con- conflicts with itself, it doesn't compete with itself, um, it doesn't contradict itself, it's very complementary. And so here's what we need. We need James, because if we just read Paul, we may go too much to one side. And we need Paul because if we just read James, we might go to one side. And you need both. Like, let me give you an example. If you read the Proverbs, the Proverbs have a bunch of, well, they've got a bunch of statements in there like, hey, it'll go well for the righteous, but the wicked will not prosper. And you go, well, that makes sense. And that's what the Bible says. So why do we need the Psalms? Because the Psalms are people living in the reality of what it feels like when the Proverbs don't come true. So that's why why they're next to each other in your Bible. You need both. Here's what God has said, and then here's the experience of living in a world that's fallen and broken when that doesn't happen. So we need the whole Bible, right? Now, when I was in college, I was a brand new believer, and I go to Elon University, and I'm like, I I need to grow in my faith. And so I was like, I know what I need to do. (laughs) I need to take a religious studies class. I didn't know, okay? (laughs) That is the worst thing. If you are in high school, do not take religious study classes at your your college. Um, So I'm like, this is great. So I get in there, and in in the class, the guy's trying to tell us, well, here's why Mark didn't know this, that Matthew said differently, and here's why Luke, and here's why John's different than all of them, and here's why Paul is different than Jesus, and here's why your New Testament is different than your Old Testament. It's like, the, the whole point was to try to show us the Bible is not one book, but it actually is one book. And so here, here just so you know, when we read the Bible, and this is the last kind of technical thing that we're going to get to faith, but I wanted to I wanted to help us, because our desire is for each of you to go to the Word of God every day for a word from God every day. So I, if I didn't want you to read the Bible, and I thought, well, you'll just come here, and I'll teach you the Bible, and this is the only thing, that. i that I need to do, then I wouldn't tell you how to read it yourself. So that's why I'm doing this. But there's a, this is kind of, okay, this is the last technical thing. Um, when we read the Bible, we do the historical, grammatical, theological lens when you read scripture. Historical says, what did it mean? Because that's what it does mean. That's the only thing, James, whatever James means, I need to understand him historically. Like he's a, okay, well, he's Jesus' younger brother. He's writing to a religious group of people who are comfortable in their faith. Oh, that's helpful. All this is helpful information. I need to have context there. Okay, so I need to be historically rooted. It can't mean something to us that it didn't mean to them. Okay. Secondly, it's grammatical. I have to take the words apart. Well, what does faith mean? You know, I already did this. What does justification mean? Are they used differently? What what does works mean? Are they used differently? So for example, if if I say the word ball, what do you think? Well, you might think, hey, well, here's a red ball. But if I said to you, I had a ball. Well, now I just took the same. Or if I said, hey, do you wanna come with me to the ball? Or if I said, can you please stay on top of the ball? Well, what did I do? Well, I just took a one, it's a it's a little word. You know, it's one syllable, it's four letters, and I just, depending on what sentence I throw it in and where I put it in the context, it means something completely differently. Well, we need to become more sophisticated. And then theological just means that what does the whole Bible teach about this? And when you read the Bible, you if there's an unclear passage, you interpret it in light of the more clear passages. And if the Bible seems to say two things that seem to contradict themselves, so we don't believe the Bible does contradict itself, we believe them both. God is sovereign and man is responsible. I believe them both. Jesus is fully God and fully man. I believe them both. Okay, so with that said, let's walk through these ideas of faith. So first we need to ask the question, what is faith? Look at me in verse 14. He says this, Well good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith? My guess is everyone in here might say I have faith. Well, well here's what he says. But does not have works. Can that faith save him? Now." I wanna talk about faith for a moment because I think we live in a world and I think maybe especially uh, Christians, uh, I think think this way, but certainly non-Christians think this way. The average American thinks this way. Here's what they think. Christians have faith, everybody else has facts. Christians believe in faith, everybody else believes in science. Christians have faith, everybody else uses their brain. And and I want you to know that when you tell your non-Christian coworker, if you say something to them about that you have faith, here's what they hear. If you say faith, they hear, you believe in foolish propositions that aren't true. I want you to know that that's what the world thinks of when you say faith. Oh, you believe in a lot of old ideas that aren't true. That's what faith is. That's not what faith is at all. In fact, here's, here's the best word for faith. The best synonym for faith is trust. So let me tell you this, so, so all the theologians, okay, i give you a little theology here. Uh, they, they, they talk about how the Christ, in the Christian faith, Jesus is the object of our faith. That's the right way to think about it. We're saved by faith, faith is the instrument. I'm oh, getting real technical here, I you it was gonna get a little technical. Faith is the instrument that connects me to Christ. But my faith is in Jesus Christ, that's what it means to be a Christian. Now here's, here's why this is helpful. Tim Keller helps us understand that every American trust in something they have an object of. It's just a different, what is the object of their faith? For example, Tim Keller, if you don't know who he is, he pastored in New York City for 30 years or so. And, and he said that uh, people in Manhattan, right, they, they, they would like to think that they're secular. Even a lot of them grew up in the church, but they want to kind of think that they've gone through it and they're above it and beyond it, right? They look at Christianity as like puberty. It was an awkward phase. We all went through and then we got over it. I, that's how secular... Manhattan people and maybe many people in Winston-Salem look at us. Oh, I used to think that before I was more evolved, okay? What, what Tim Keller helps us understand, and this is true, is he says there's no, and I don't mean this in a dismissive, demeaning, patronizing way. He just said, listen, there's actually no such thing as secular people. They don't exist. I mean, I, I, we can use the word secular, secular music, fine, that's fine. I've, I've used it. He said, but technically, biblically, it's not true. There are Christians and then there are pagans, I know no no one in Winston thinks of themselves as a pagan, but a pagan is somebody who trusts in, worships, or believes in someone or something other than Jesus. So it's helpful to go, it's not Christians have faith and everybody else doesn't. It's the better way to think about it is Jesus is the object of the Christian's faith. And everybody else has a different ultimate object of their faith, right? And here's a real popular one today, yourself. So that's all the goofy, I believe in me. Right, like my, my buddy, he was, he was actually at, he was in college ministry when 9-11 happened. And he said during 9-11, like well, the week after 9-11, everybody got together on campus at this one, this, this secular, I mean, pagan school, okay? <laughs> um, this, this just is this, 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 this public university. He said they got together and they sang a song and it was called, We Are the Ones We Are Waiting For. That's belief in self. What is the obsession with self-expression? with self-fulfillment, with self-esteem, with self-actualization. I don't know if you've heard of this thing called manifesting. It's this goofy idea that whatever you believe can happen, can happen. And you can, Oprah made it famous. It's belief in self. Okay, secondly, what, is that? what do other people trust in money? And obviously people trust in money. I'm surprised everybody doesn't trust in money, right? Money is the number one competitor in your heart for God. No question. And the reason why, just think about it for a moment. Why does money, why do so many people trust in money? Well, it makes so many promises. I will be a shelter for you, the Lord says. And he means that. He means, and that's super important. I will be your refuge. And money says, well, you could have two or three homes if you have enough of me. And the Lord says, ah, one day I'm gonna heal you and I'm gonna take you to heaven. And, and, but a lot of money says, but in the meantime, I could take you to the Mayo Clinic. And the Lord says, at my right hand, Psalm 16, are there pleasures forevermore? But money says, dude, if you've got enough of me and discretionary income, I'm sorry, and discretionary time, we could do a lot of things. Whatever you wanna do. What are you into? You a travel person, let's do it. Are you a tech guy? Let's do it. Are you a comfort and convenience guy? Let's go. So obviously people put their trust in money. This is why we know that whenever the stock market is up, this is true historically, whenever the stock market is up, church attendance is down. You can't put your ultimate trust in more than one thing. And every time when the stock market is down, church attendance is up. Some people put their trust in politicians, right? What's happened in the midst of whatever is happening in our nation where there's the, the vacuum of the religious and the vacuum of a value for theology and God. Um, what, what historians tell us, and we know this from Nazi Germany and other places, that whenever you get rid of the religious, it gets absorbed into the political every time. It's what happened in Nazi Germany. So what begins to happen is like you go, why are these people like, why is their political party and their political candidate everything to them. Not a healthy, my vote matters. But an everything to them. It's like, oh my goodness, this is where their ultimate trust is in. What's interesting on the other side of that, I read an article a year or two ago, it was during, I think, the last major election cycle. And they were, they were trying to figure out why the billionaires in Silicon Valley didn't put more money into the elections. It's like, a, you know, having a billion dollars is so much money, it's just hard to even understand it. You might go, well, why wouldn't you put like, who cares, millions into it? And when they interviewed these guys and gals, they basically realized they don't believe that that's the future. They're not worried who wins. They're putting all of their money into big data searching. They're putting all of their money into AI. They're putting all of their money into virtual reality. Why? It's where they trust. It is the object of their faith. Now, this is so important because I want us to understand, like, how do you know when you trust something? Right? Okay. You've probably seen some of you have been to camp before, and, and someone gave you the chair talk. Maybe you've seen this. They bring the chair on stage. It's a good illustration. And they say, when do you, you know, when do you trust the chair? Is it when you read the manual that it can, you know, hold 250 pounds? Is that when you trust it? Is it when you looked at the four legs? Or no, when you ultimately trust it is when you sat on it, right? Well, okay. So you've heard that maybe the example of the guy who did the tightrope walking. This is a true story. A guy from France came here years ago and did tightrope walking across Niagara Falls. And he put out messages everywhere, I'm gonna go tightrope walking. It was like 1,100 feet in the air. He's, he's, he's walking this tightrope, thousands and thousands of people show up. And uh, you gotta read about this. He, so he walks across the first time and everyone's like, unbelievable! You know, thousands of people were there. He walks across with a wheelbarrow. Everyone's like, this is unbelievable! You know, And then the third time he walks across, it's like he keeps doing it. He goes back and he cooks an omelet in the middle of, of Niagara Falls. And then he goes back, and this was all planned, and he finally says, and there's thousands of people there, he says, who thinks that I could put someone on my back and walk across this tightrope? And the crowd erupts, you can do it! You know, you know what crowds are like, what mob mentality is like, everyone's like, you can do it, you can do it! And he goes, okay, who wants to jump on my back? <laughs> and it was all part of the plan that they had, but they knew, it's just like you know, and that's why you laughed, it's like no one, no one. There were thousands of people there, and no one said yes. Well, his manager had been part of the plan. They'd been practicing this. His manager said, I'll jump on your back. And his manager jumps on his back, and they walk across together, Niagara Falls. The question at the end of the day is, okay, who really believed? The guy who jumped on his back, right? Years ago, my brother went skydiving. My brother's had an interesting life. He went skydiving in the Swiss Alps. And he's telling me and my family about this. He's like, oh, I'm going to go skydiving. I'm like, you're going to go skydiving? Like, I've done life insurance policies before. Like, the, the question number one is, like, do you plan on or have you ever gone skydiving? <laughs> it's calculating how likely you are to die, basically. Um, so I'm telling my brother, he's like, oh, no, dude, I, don't worry. He's like, I've I talked to them all about the parachute. Like, it always, like they've never had one not go, you know, open up. I'm like, yet, right? <laughs> yet. He's like, and then they actually have a backup parachute. If that parachute doesn't. And so what are we talking about? When you jump out of a plane, ultimately, what are you doing? I mean, you're trusting, yes, in the person you're attached to. But even more than that, you are trusting that that parachute opens up, right? We don't do things, and we don't go places, and we don't get in things that we don't trust, right? This is why I'm never going to fly Frontier or Spirit Airlines, okay? (laughs) You all know what I'm talking about. I don't believe a flight could be that cheap. They're they're doing something. I don't fly those those airlines. I don't trust them. So here's why. Here's why I'm talking about trust, guys, because um, what makes Christianity different than everything else is that we trust in a person, Jesus Christ, and we trust in the same way the guy jumps on the back of the guy walking across Niagara Falls, okay, in the same way that my brother says, if this parachute doesn't open, I'm in massive trouble. We trust in Jesus Christ, and what we call that is being justified by faith alone. It means that the only reason I'm going to heaven is because of Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. As the only, so my, there's two things that are wrong with each of us, that we need our sins to be forgiven and we need our life to be perfect. And Jesus pays the penalty for our sins on the cross, and he lives the life that we can't live in our place. And the unbelievable, shocking, surprising, different than every other religion is that when we trust in what Jesus did, like trust, like transfer trust, like faith, like Jesus is the object of my faith, like it changes us and that's all we need to do to be a Christian, to head to heaven, to be born again, to have the Holy Spirit, all the things the Bible says about Christians. Here's why that's so shocking. Here's, here's another way to say it. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation or to deserve it. You can't ugly cry enough, <laughs> Right? You can't feel bad enough for your sin. You can't try to do a bunch of good things the rest of your life because of some bad things you did in the past. Like there is nothing you can do to earn your salvation. It's only by trusting in Christ, and that's so precious. In fact, here's what's really interesting, and this is really deep here, but in Ephesians 2.8.9, it actually says, faith is a gift from God to us. So it even says this, that somehow the ability to go, I believe was a gift. I, don't, I, I know there's a mystery. I don't understand fully how it works. But here's what I know, that 300 years from now, if you're in heaven because you've trusted in Christ, you're not gonna be standing in heaven going, I'm here because I'm smarter than my neighbor. Uh, somehow he didn't get it. He, he couldn't understand Jesus. He couldn't make the connections. Trust me, you're not gonna be in heaven worshiping the Lord a thousand years from now and stop and go, you know what? The reason I'm here here." It was by faith alone, but the reason that I had faith was I'm a little more spiritually open than my classmate was. I promise you that's not why you're going to heaven. And I'm just telling you what it's been doing it for 2,000 years. What transforms the human heart is when you realize, oh, my goodness, everything is of grace. I believe, and that has transformed and changed my life. And he's saying that that... That faith, this is what James, and we're gonna finish up here. James says that faith is the faith that faith that transforms your whole life. Let me show you. Here, here's what he says. Look at verse 14 or 15. I'm sorry. He says this. He's gonna give you the first time first type of false faith. He's gonna give you two types of false faith that you find in the church. So I told you false faiths that you find in the culture. Faith in science, faith in politicians, faith in, you know, ultimate faith in uh technology, faith in romantic relationships, faith in self, faith in money. He gives you two that you find in the church. Here's what he says. If a brother or sister is poor, poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. So the first type of faith he says that it's, it's possible to have in the church is what is called dead faith. Here's how dead, he summarizes it, right? He gives the illustration like, Someone comes, they're needy, and all you give them, all you say to their need is words, but you give them no works. All you do is say things with your lips, but you do nothing with your life, okay? So that's dead faith is a faith with lips and no life. It's a faith with words and no works. And you might go, how does this happen? Well, it only happens in the church. It only, and it doesn't ever happen to first-generation believers. Like if you're the first in your family, there's no chance you have dead faith like you came out of whatever you came out of, and you believe, and it's so obvious that you're so different than everything else. Where dead faith happens is it's like it happens a lot with teenagers, who so they're in the house and they're like, well, I, you know, I don't really believe this, but I better start giving. Here it is, the right answer instead of the real answer. I think what hinders people a lot is they learn how to give the right answer about something. The right answer is this is what the this is what I know they want to hear. Or this is what I know the Bible says, but this is not what I believe, and this is not what I feel. And so people get stuck. I had a guy, he was, uh, his parents were going through a divorce. This was back in college. And I was like trying to like, minister to him, and I couldn't minister to him because he would never give me the real answer. I'm like, how are you doing? May? He's like, oh, I'm doing great. Just trusting the Lord. I'm like, this is like so raw. He like, so just found out. I'm like, there's no way you're doing well. And I do not think you're trusting the Lord. I'm not saying people can't trust the Lord when that's happening. I'm saying I could tell he wasn't but I I couldn't get the real answer. I just kept getting the right answer. (sighs) See, what happens when when somebody really comes to faith in Christ, they just start having these works. We learn how to have the words without the works. True faith has the works even before it has the words. So here's what, I saw this all the time. Someone would come to faith in Christ on the college campus and they would immediately talk to me and they'd be like, hey, listen, we gotta, I gotta, uh, I don't know how to do this, but I need to share this with other people. And I'm like, oh, what you're talking about right now is evangelism. You don't even know the word for it yet. You've got the works before the, here's the word, the word's of evangelism. We're the exact opposite in the church. We know how to talk about evangelism not do it. I've had people that are coming up that hey man, I just messed up real bad and they should start confessing sin. They're brand new believers. It's like, oh my goodness. They're confessing without even understanding what confession is. They don't even have a theology of confession yet. They just feel convicted by their sin and they're confessing. We learn how to talk about confession but never confess anything real. We learn how to say we're praying about something when we're thinking about it. We, say, we learn how to talk about how we're struggling when we're not really struggling. We're giving in. And so it's a very dangerous place to be in, to give the right answer instead of the real answer. And here's the worst thing. It's confusing to the world. Like, I'm not saying this is a good excuse. I think people sometimes use this as a smokescreen. But if you ever try to share your faith with people, especially in a religious city like this, an excuse you're going to get that's legitimate in some situations is, well, you know, I, I had these people in my life, and they said they were Christians, but they hurt me. They were they were hypocrites, they betrayed me, they didn't look any different. It's like, well, a dead faith is a confusing faith to the world. And it, I'll tell you who it's especially confusing to parents, your kids. So I don't know what's worse, I don't know what's worse. Not bringing your kids to church at all or bringing your kids to church and having all the words here, but none of the works at home. You know how to sing, you know how to take notes, you know how to make listening noises right you know how to have the conversation you know how to be polite to the staff you know how to act how to sit nice with your family when you're here and then you go home and you're a completely different person and i don't know if that's i don't know if that's worse than just not coming because then you teach your kids that christianity is a hobby and that christianity is full of hypocrites which it is but we need some people who are also really changed which leads to the second thing, which isn't demonic or which isn't dead faith, it's demonic faith. If you look at me here, demonic faith is this. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe. So there's, there is dead faith and now there is demonic faith. The same faith the demons believe. Look, even the demons believe in shudder. Do you want to be shown you foolish person that apart from work, that, sorry, that faith apart from works is useless. So Demonic faith, well, let's start with the demons. Demonic faith is an orthodox faith that doesn't really wanna follow Jesus. It has all the right creeds and all the right confessions, but it wants nothing to do with Christ. See, here's what's interesting about demons, and this may give you, if you never had this thought, you'll get a new lens when you read scripture. If you read the gospels, nobody knows who Jesus is except for the demons. Even the disciples, they wear reversible jerseys, right? They're on Team Jesus, no, they're not on Team Jesus, right? Peter says, you are the Christ. Then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. John the Baptist is preaching uh, repentance and doing baptisms. And then when he goes in jail, he calls for Jesus and he says, are you really the Messiah? He has lots of doubts, John the Baptist does, the great preacher in the wilderness. Guess who never doubts and who always knows exactly who Jesus is? The demons. Watch every interaction. What do you want with us? Are you here before the appointed time? they understand who he is. See, a demonic faith is a faith that knows who Jesus is but doesn't want to follow, who knows who Jesus is, who recognizes who he is, but doesn't want to repent. And what's interesting here is it even seems to say the demons have the wrong emotional response to Scripture. You see, it says, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It says, then the demon shudder. If you read Deuteronomy 6, it's a comforting passage. God is one. He's unified. Love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Teach his ways to your children. That's Deuteronomy 6. It says the demons read that and shudder. They have the opposite emotional response that they should to Scripture. They have a moral problem. They have a deep spiritual problem. They have a a lack of a desire to submit. And here's what we're talking about. So this is is helpful to understand what happens with emotions. Jonathan Edwards, you've probably heard of him. He's a famous Christian. Most non-Christians would say one of the best minds America ever produced, Jonathan Edwards. He used to study 13 hours a day. Think about that. Even when he would take breaks, he'd ride his horse, he'd walk through fields. And while he would do that, he would pin, he would have thoughts and he'd pray and he'd put pins, he'd pin notes on his jacket. It was the iCloud note-taking of the day, okay? And uh, anyway, so, and, and he thought a lot about uh, scripture and he thought a lot about the human condition. And one of the things he said is he said, underneath your emotions, and there's lots of them, right? Like, you don't even like how you feel sometimes. You're like, Your emotions are like you're scared, and you're angry, and you're lonely, and you're grossed out, right? And you feel guilty, and you feel happy, and you feel sad, and you're like, I don't even know why I feel these sometimes. Okay, well, he said, well, that's because there's something under all those. If you go one step lower under those, it's called your affections. And your affections are only two things. It's what you love and what you hate. So the reason that you would respond emotionally differently than somebody else is because you guys love different things, or you hate different things. His whole point is the only way, the, the, the problem is you can never change, you can never change your affections. And you might, you're just like, I don't, I hate what I love. And what happens when you're a Christian is Jesus comes into your life, and by faith, when, you, when he's the object of your faith, you get the, Holy, the person of the Holy Spirit. And it begins to transform, and you begin to love the things God loves for the reasons God loves them. And you begin to hate the things God hates for the reasons God, God hates them. And so what he's going to end with, and this is where we'll close today, is is he shows us what dynamic faith is. So there's dead faith, which is words without works. There's demonic faith, which is creeds and confessions without really wanting to follow Christ. And there's dynamic faith, which is believing that changes behavior. Let me show you. He gives two examples here. He gives Abraham and he gives Rahab. Look at this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, and here's the key thing, if you wanna know what is dynamic faith, which means living faith, it's verse 23. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Do you know there is a massive difference between believing in God and believing God. Almost every American believes in God. I mean, still, look at all the studies. Yes, there's atheism, yes, there's agnosticism, I get it. But everyone believes in God. Here's what the Bible says if you believe in God. This is what the Bible says to you. Good job. In fact, the Bible says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So if you believe in God, the Bible says all you get to be is not a fool. Okay, well that makes sense because nobody times nothing can equal everything. Okay, there's a God. Okay, now I'm not a fool. Okay, I don't believe the impersonal can create the personal. I don't believe chaos can create order. I get it, okay, I'm not a fool, great. But there is a massive chasm between believing in God and saying, I believe God. And how do you know you believe God? You believe what he has said in his word. Let me ask you this, do you have a faith that is disruptive to your life. Because I don't know how to read all the people of scripture without, a dynamic faith is a disruptive faith. And I mean that in the best sense of the word. I mean, Think about Noah, what happens when he believes? It messes with his whole life. I don't know if you believe, if it hasn't messed with your whole life, right? Noah's like, well, I got a new job now. I'm building a boat for 120 years. People don't understand me. What happens with, I mean, are you different than Abraham? It's like, yes and no. It's like, what happens to Abraham? It's like, well, faith disrupts his whole life. It's like, well, you're moving and you're gonna get pregnant late in life and you're gonna be misunderstood and you're gonna be the father of many nations and you're leaving your family. Or how about the apostle Paul? I know he's special. I know he had a unique role in redemptive history. I get it, but he's more like you than not like you. And why does his faith disrupt his whole life and yours doesn't? It called every relationship he had into question. Everything. Look at, look at Abraham, okay? What is it? Why is he giving an example of sacrificing the son? Well, that's a famous story, but let me tell you why. It's because what f- true, dynamic, disruptive faith says in your life is I'm all in. That's, I mean that, that was, That's what he was saying with Isaac, because Isaac represented the future. Isaac represented, if you'll give me this, you'll give me everything. Like, like some of you, there are parts of your life that are completely incompatible with faith. I mean, faith in Jesus. Some of you, your browser history, if we could just be real honest, is incompatible with faith. The, what you've been consuming on streaming service is incompatible with your faith. Your lack of generosity toward the kingdom of God is incompatible with faith. The way that you treat your spouse and your kids is incompatible. See, he gives us one other example, Rahab. Now, why Rahab? It's like, well, because it's easy to go, well, maybe Abraham's special. I mean, he is the father of our faith. He is a patriarch. You know, well, God spoke directly to him. Well, maybe he's special. Well, we get Rahab because guess who Rahab is? The exact opposite of Abraham. Abraham's a guy, Rahab's a girl. Abraham's old, Rahab's young. Abraham's rich, Rahab's poor. Abraham is is Jewish, Rahab's Gentile. Abraham, he had his struggles, but his life was a little more cleaned up. Rahab is a prostitute. In fact, most people think that she may have been running the brothel. Because how, how are you able to hide these spies? How are you in as much control as it looks like you're in? It's like, well, actually, oh, maybe Rahab, there's a good chance Rahab was running the brothel, which means she was doing what Romans 1 said is the worst sin possible. I'm not just sinning, I'm helping other people sin and I'm celebrating it. So I want you to see what it says here. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Here's what it says, that true faith in Jesus, when he's the object of your faith, when you transfer trust to him, when you realize that he's done everything necessary to save you, when you have that reality, it changes you at the deepest level and it's expressed in works. Okay, so, so give you an example. With, with, with uh, Rahab, she goes from a prostitute, actually a prostitute leading other prostitutes, to a protector of God's people overnight by faith. You know, and people, here's an interesting thought. You know, what is the mission of our church? You know, we're going to reach every man, woman, and child, give them repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. Yes. What is? Our, what are we trying to do? We're trying to make disciples. We're trying to plant churches, okay? What do we want our church to feel like? And I hope this is what it does feel like, and I hope this is what it will feel like for you and your family. If you would just ask the question, Kyle, what do you want it to feel like? Community group, coming here, whatever I'm doing, that's part of this church, what do I want it to feel like? Life change. Because of Jesus and because of the gospel, life change. You know, last night after service, had this older lady come up to me, nice lady, and she said to me, Kyle, she said, Do you remember when you preached that those two sermons in a row and one was to the men and one was to the women? I thought, oh no, yeah, I remember. (laughs) I said it was in the Song of Solomon series in January. And then I wasn't expecting this because I thought I don't know what's gonna happen. She says, I'm gonna try not to get emotional. She said, our marriage has been completely different since she preached those two sermons. My husband has been a completely different person. It's like, well, what am I hearing? I'm hearing life change. I mean, that's, that's it. It looks different for everybody. It's like, you know, had another lady one time, she's just so happy about our church and what she tells one of our staff, this is the first church my husband will actually show up in. I had another parent tell me recently, this is the first church their kid doesn't fall asleep in. <laughs> we'll take that as the first step of life change, okay? And, uh, and guys, that's what we want. That's what we want, you know, marriages that are reconciled. People's lives completely transformed by the gospel. People who are bitter being set free. People who are addicted finding freedom in Christ. Dads who are workaholics and not present beginning to be present. In that, that that's what we want see, and that's the life change that's happening. So let me ask you, what kind of faith do you have? I mean, not, not not what faith does your spouse have? Not who needs to hear this message, but do you have dead faith? Because I can tell you, I actually know we know from scripture how to have real faith. It's like you can't have dynamic disruptive faith until you start being real and you got to start being real with yourself and with God first. You need to probably later tell somebody else, but maybe at the end of the service you just need to tell God, God, i I'm done performing and playing and pretending. And I'm done giving the right, I know the right answer. I've been to VBS, I've been to Sunday school. I know every right answer. I'm gonna start giving the real answer and I'm gonna trust you to change my heart. For others of you, you may have demonic faith and demonic faith is, dude, I don't feel anything. I know everything and I feel nothing. You've gotta look to Christ. You know, there's, the reason that you shouldn't have demonic faith is because Jesus did something for demons, that He did, did something for you that he didn't do for demons. He died for you. I don't understand. It's actually one of the mysteries. Why didn't, why do did we get a second chance and the demons didn't? Think about that for, it's like they sinned. They didn't get a second chance. Jesus died for every person. Jesus did not die for any demons. They don't, they can never, they don't even have the possibility to know Jesus as savior. They can only know him as Lord. They only know grace, they can't know, or they only know sin, they don't know grace. They only know judgment, they don't know mercy. For others of you, yes, you know, you're here and you're a believer and you're like, I have real faith. I have, I have that disruptive, maybe it was a little more disruptive before than it is now, I've gotten comfortable, but I have that disruptive dynamic faith. It's like, well, what should I do? Well, here's the, here's the thing. You need, you need to show that dynamic faith in works, but here's the good news. God doesn't need your works. Just put yourself at ease. It's another thing that makes you amazing. It's like, guess what? God's not tired. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need any money. He's not hungry. He's not lonely. He's not tired. He's not been beat up. He's fine. God doesn't need your good works. People do. It's so freeing. It's like, golly, who needs your good works? It's like, well, how about your kids? You don't have a lot of time with them. Maybe they could use some good works. Or how about your spouse it's like goodness gracious only you can do certain good works for her your husband i know he's i know he's hard and all that kind of stuff there's some good works you could do for him it's so freeing to go golly god all right i receive it because you know what they say they say that there's a way to translate these verses on that first thing where it says go be warm be filled A lot of people think that it actually should be translated in the middle voice. And you know what the middle voice is? The middle voice is translated like this in the Greek. I hope somebody else fills you up. I hope somebody else keeps you warm. What is that saying? I hope somebody else meets your needs, which is the great temptation for us. There are certain things only you can do and if you don't do them, you leave a massive hole. Your life matters. Or you leave a massive hole in your family. You leave a massive hole in your neighborhood. You leave a massive hole at work. So let us pray to have true, real faith that works. Will you pray with me? As you pray, if you feel comfortable, maybe you just put your hands in front of you, palms up. Sometimes what we do with our bodies, it kind of communicates something from our soul, and it just says this, Lord, I just... I wanna receive, you know, that's the biblical word for believe is receive, it's the same word. It's a beautiful picture because what we do with truth is we welcome it into our lives, we hug it. (laughs) Another word for believe is embrace, it's I hug it, I love it, it's the best thing about (laughs) my life. It's what I'm standing on, it's what I'm trusting in. If you have dead faith, would you just confess it to the Lord, would you say God today, I'm done saying the right answer, I wanna start saying the real answer. For others of you, would you just say, I'm done with demonic faith. I, the, I, I don't need to be convinced, I need to be converted. Or would you help people? Would you connect people's heart? Would you connect people's mind? Would you connect their emotions? Where do you need to take God at his word and say, I'm not just believing in God, I'm believing God, I'm gonna take God at his word and I'm going to take my next step. Jesus, on one occasion, looked at someone and said, you know what, let it be done according to your faith. What are you going to believe God for, for your family, for this church and for this city? We ask all this in faith, in Jesus' name, amen.